Hello everyone, welcome back to Wake Up Call Podcast. This is episode 22. Today we have a few rants for you. We're going to cover a lot of topics today actually. So uh, buckle in and good listening. So today uh, I'm going to start off by talking about something that is very recent and quite relevant still. Um, I'm going to talk about child labor laws in Minnesota, Iowa, and other Midwestern states. I know that a lot of our listeners are young people like us who probably also had some sort of jobs when they were younger. Um, But I do want to talk about where do we draw the line and how problematic some of these new proposed bills are. I do want to say that some of them are already passed, others are only in negotiation or trying to be voted on right now, but a lot of these states have similar sort of traits in what kind of bill they're trying to pass. So what's the general gist of what's happening? Basically, a lot of people uh, in industries such as meatpacking and construction quit their jobs. There's like a labor shortage in these states. For example, Minnesota lost 90,000 workers alone during the pandemic, whereas Iowa's not too far behind with 75,000 open jobs in December. So what do they think of? What do the employers and the government think? They were like, okay, so we could pay adults more. So basically more people would want to work in these industries. However, you know what? Maybe let's just hire kids. Maybe let's hire teenagers as young as 14 to basically fill the labor shortage and just pay them less than adults. So that was the idea. And these are the kind of bills that they're trying to pass in government. So what's the problem? Uh, what are these kind of jobs that this these teenagers would basically work? For example, if we're talking about Iowa, it would permit children as young as 14 to work in industrial freezers and meat coolers. At 15, they could be be working as lifeguards, swimming instructors, loading, unloading up to 50 pounds of products. Also, depending on the strength and ability of the 15-year-old, which is very like arbitrary, don't really know what that means. Minnesota's bill seeks to allow 16, 17-year-olds to perform construction work, um, etc. So, look, I don't necessarily think that there's something inherently wrong with teenagers wanting a job. I think it's very intuitive. Once you're 16 in the summer, you might get bored and you might want to work in an ice cream shop or at a clothes shop to get some pocket money and to do something useful with your time. But when it comes to people as young as 14 working in potentially dangerous and really not so fun sites such as meatpacking, freezers, or construction, I think it becomes quite problematic okay i got a question yeah okay this is i think an interesting subject and i wish that we had uh dr martin holes here to to talk about it because i think he's probably one of the world's leading experts in this field of labor economics but i'm just gonna think out loud here so you're talking about these child labor laws and i think most of us intuitively think that child labor is bad and then we got to start looking for alternatives which is similar to what France did. I don't know if you've seen the protests that are happening in France right now about um, the retirement age changing from 62 to 65 or something like that. I just have a vague idea of what's going on. But 
the fact is people aren't willing to work these jobs at those wages fair enough they need higher pay but these companies can't often afford higher pay or else that means that they'll have to cut the number of employees and then you've got a whole other unemployment problem that's starting so leftist protests when it's on the higher end when you're increasing the retirement age and not allowing people to retire before 65 in order to qualify for full pensions but you also complain when it's when it's on the lower end i just i simply don't understand what the alternative to child labor is if i mean it just i mean it just sounds like you can't have it both ways. If if you want to fill a labor shortage, you got to find workers from somewhere, either through immigration, through increasing the retirement age, or allowing kids to work, which to me seems like the worst of the three options. Yeah. Yeah, I did hear about France. It's from 62 to 64, and there have been huge protests. Uh, I think what the French are protesting also more about is like the ruling by decree that Macron is doing. He just kind of passed this bill without even advising parliament in a way. So that's a huge problem, uh, in my opinion. Like, according to the alternatives, I do definitely see your point. Politics is a very sort of trade-off game. It's a, an alternative game in itself. But I think that if we do have political capital to pass bills like these, we probably do have polit political capital to do other things and ways to help these companies still survive whether it's giving them some sort of government help um, or other things like that. I obviously don't know how much negotiation has been going on in regards to the different alternatives proposed in the specific governments, but I don't think that this is the best that they could have come up with. Um, now, to continue this, I think it becomes a bit more problematic also when we think about who would actually be employed in these kind of jobs. Because intuitively, I don't think it would be middle or higher class people's kids uh, who can actually have the ability to be employed somewhere nicer, you know, and maybe to even get less money, but have fun at work at least, or get some experience that could be transferred later to higher skilled jobs. I think, and experts see this as well, that mostly low income families would be hired into these meatpacking or construction industries um, because basically a lot of families in poverty would legitimately see this as a way to get more income for the family um, which isn't necessarily a free choice that the teenager makes then to go and work in their free time it's sort of out of financial need and also a lot of these skills in these very basic jobs are simply not transferable they're not exactly valuable for you as a person for the future, which kind of defeats the purpose um, of working as a young person, which is like the main benefit that a lot of people want to claim when they talk about this topic. So, and so is the primary yeah. concern, sorry, is the primary concern for you like the fact that children are working in jobs or the fact that these jobs are dangerous or the fact that the children are working in dangerous jobs is it is it that the working conditions are unsafe and that's inherent to the job and therefore you should allow adults to do those jobs or is it that children basically shouldn't be working yeah i think we shouldn't normalize children working that much to like this extent i still think that for children 
uh, their teenage years should be mostly about education and finding yourself, not necessarily working for a paid wage. I don't see necessarily anything bad with people 16 and up working part-time jobs or working sometimes to get more money and be more financially independent if that's what you want to do. But I think the issue for me is on several layers. It's also that children work in dangerous jobs and also in general that I don't think children should work. Uh, I don't think we should be forming a society where that shouldn't be happening and where the parents could fully at any financial level uphold their kids and their needs. Something that's really important in this topic as well is that there have been investigations into labor condition violations and in general child labor law violations. Vishwa, you already mentioned, but this especially concerns migrant children. They have been illegally employed, uh, working in dangerous conditions um, with dangerous chemicals and stuff like that. Um, for example, in Hyundai Kia supply chain in Alabama, there's an investigation for employing children as young as 14, and many of these children are from Guatemalan migrant families. So once again, kind of ties in to what I said about the low-income children being kind of chosen or basically in these jobs more than people who are more well-off. So I think the main question for me then, and this can be like a discussion point for you, Vishva, is how can we leverage these things? You know, how far can we let the market kind of save itself um, before losing our own morals? And where is the line? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very simple question that you just asked there. I mean, obviously, in my opinion, if things are violating regulations, those are things that we should stop. And like you said, the DHS or is it Department of Labor? Um, whatever yeah. federal authority is intervening in regulations where the laws are, are being violated. I just personally think that there's there's two distinct issues that are happening here. On one hand, you've got this argument that children should be focused on education and they shouldn't be working. But you say that it should be fine when they're working at an ice cream shop or, or, or something else. Again, things that wouldn't add to their education in any way, but are just a fun way of getting some extra pocket change. But then on the other hand, there's this concern of, of safety and things like that. And I'm just struggling to comprehend whether the argument that you're making, I mean, because I think there are two different arguments, is firstly that, you know, meatpacking plants and uh, auto plants and uh, whatever whatever plants you talked about, like the freezers and things like that, are inherently unsafe areas that children should be far away from, or whether the labor codes have not been enforced in those areas, and therefore it's unsafe and children are becoming particularly victimized due to their vulnerable nature um, in those workspaces? Like, is it the first or is it the second? I think that these laws, they were created not for no reason. Like, basically what's happening right now is that they're reversing or cutting back on laws that already existed in the child labor law area. So, yeah, I think it is dangerous. I mean, it's kind of a mix of two reasons. It is dangerous and it's also not necessarily what children can be doing. 
maybe in if you work in an ice cream shop, some of your skills can be transferable. Like you can move up and work in a restaurant chain and then you can move up and be a restaurant manager or something like that. If you work in a meatpacking plant, I think it's a bit different of a story. Uh, and then something that I wanted to just ask you as a discussion point, that's totally unrelated, but something that has been on my mind in the topic of like what's paid and unpaid as a young person are unpaid internships. Like I absolutely hate unpaid internships. I don't understand why we normalize them in general. Um, yeah, I think that they're kind of silly, to be honest. Um, and I'm glad to see that most places are moving away from them. But like even the United Nations, which like boasts about, you know, everyone having e equity and everyone kind of having uh, a life with dignity, they have all internships that are unpaid. Yeah, and I mean, I saw I saw a post on, on LinkedIn and it was basically saying as much. It said that the UN should know better than to segment its entire target intern audience as people that can afford to take three or four months off unpaid and just get their expenses covered. There's a lot of people that simply cannot afford to do that. It's a very privileged group of people that are capable of doing that. And the UN as an organization should not be catering towards exclusively a privileged group of people. It should be catering to everyone, people that can or cannot afford to make those decisions. Yeah, in, in that case, I think that internships should be paid. That being said, I don't think that unpaid internships are like evil or anything like that. I think they do offer some sort of valid experience and learning and, and, and network building um, that is sort of detached from income. But I think that really they're just inequitable by nature because a lot of people cannot access them. Definitely. I'm very happy you said that. Yeah, it definitely creates a cycle where even if you're studying political science, if you're not from a kind of comfortable family, you will not likely be able to get this internship and be working in restaurants when you're studying. And then while all of your richer friends have like a head start in your in their career, you're kind of not there yet. Yeah, um, I'm happy to see that the tides are, are turning, though. Um, uh, I, I know a lot of places that, that I was talking to, um, a lot of individuals told me that because they actually had to cut down on the number of interns because their bosses are no longer allowing them to do unpaid internships because it looks bad for uh, a lot of companies that they're hiring a bunch of kids, you know, who are currently in the middle of a cost of living crisis, struggling to pay their tuition and just not paying them whatsoever. So I think those are starting to disappear. But um, yeah, I definitely am I'm, I'm glad to see the death of them. But I do think that there is a little bit of a balance, right? Like, if someone is willing to do to just get not like not get paid and, and, and do an internship, like, I still think that that's a valuable experience for them and they should be free to make that decision. With that being said, I think offering them as exclusively unpaid without any sort of bursary option, any sort of funding option, any sort of scholarship that you might be able to get uh, is, a, is a little evil, especially from an organization like the UN. Yeah, for sure. Well, it was great discussing this, but now I want to hear what you have for us today. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm I'm gonna change directions a bit. Um, 
I need to talk about one of my personal pet peeves. I actually discovered that this was a pet peeve um, when I was chatting with my girlfriend. We were going on a walk. And I was just, I, I don't know, I don't know what it was, but the topic of snakes came up in conversation. And I just launched into like a 15 minute tirade about why I think that snake owners are among the most stupid people in the world. And then I like developed this whole theory of like human evolution, um, like a counterfactual human evolution. If like people that own snakes were like eliminated from the population, like let's say they were never born. I believe that we'd be like exponentially far ahead in life. Yeah, so I was developing this like counterfactual theory of, of evolution um, as I was ranting about how much I hate snake owners. And basically I'm convinced that snake owners risk tolerance oh, really? is basically indicative of really, really, really low intellect that brings down the average mean human intellect in society. So let's say Albert Einstein is at about oh. here. I'm sorry for those of you listening that you can't see where here is. Um, but at about head level. Let's say that um, the average human is at about like chin level. Yeah, snake owners are like down right by your toes. They, their level of, uh, of risk tolerance, their, their level of basically stupidity and owning poisonous, violent apex predators and putting them in a cage is honestly just the silliest thing ever. And this doesn't go just for snake owners. This goes for all of those people that own cheetahs and tigers and random ass like spiders and lizards or whatever. So yeah, I basically think that their risk tolerance is like indicative of something, something fundamentally wrong with them. I'm sorry for any snake owners in our audience, but this is this is what I think of people that own poisonous or dangerous animals. So I basically think that if we eliminated these people from our population, we would have been super, super far ahead um, in life, like exponentially far ahead. Because you, as you know, human technological growth is sort of an exponential curve, but these people are bringing down the exponent on that curve by a whole bunch. But, you know, if you turn that, exp if you remove those people, average human intelligence would be way higher and we could make progress way faster. So the reason I was thinking about this and the reason I wanted to bring up this about in our podcast is basically sort of as um, an analogy for risk tolerance. I know a lot of you who follow like business news or, or, or banking news have, have seen this sort of mini banking crisis that's taking place all over the world. So it's sort of exemplified by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank in the United States. And it's happened before. Banks have collapsed. It's a thing that they do. But we need to examine why exactly banks collapse. So Silicon Valley Bank was basically just like your run-of-the-mill bank, um, you know, taking out loans, putting out deposits. But something that it did that a lot of other banks did not do, and what made it super like famous among the tech bro community that we love so much on this podcast is that it had a lot of money invested in tech companies and was a source for them to put their deposits, a source for them to basically get their financing under control and things like that. So it was a very important bank to the tech community. And uh, they collapsed essentially because they had terrible risk tolerance. This is the same thing that happened in 2008 
Um, it's not the same thing at all, actually, that happened in 2008, but it's the same cause for bank failures um, that happened in 2008 that caused a whole bunch of banks to go under. Milda, what is your take on snake owners and banking? I, I'm really curious to hear this before I go on. I think, honestly, I do understand when people, like, own exotic cats. Like, I can't, I think that's bad, obviously. I don't support it at all, but I understand how, you know, they're big cats. They're cute. I don't, I don't find anything cute about snakes. I think it's honestly a fetish. You have something for danger that you like, like owning a dangerous animal. I, I just don't understand it at all. So I do agree. Regarding banks, uh, you can explain this a lot better than I do. I just honestly, I'm learning from you because the banking, the deposits, the terms, I'm still like kind of learning all of these things. But I do want to hear how can banks regulate better? Great. Okay, I'm going to try and, and, and simplify um, this crisis for you um, through sources that I've, I've, I've heard. I've, I've watched a couple videos, I listened to a couple podcasts about this whole crisis, and I'm going to try and simplify it, acknowledging that I'm not an expert in the best way that I can. So essentially what happened is that Silicon Valley Bank, um, during the venture capital boom period, recently had began to acquire a whole bunch of cash. And they weren't able to sort of loan it out the way that a lot of banks could, just because, you know, a lot of tech startups didn't need the financing. They were flush with cash. So what they did instead was they decided to buy a whole bunch of bonds when interest rates were really, really low. If you remember in like 2020, 2021, the interest rates from the central banks were super, super low, making it cheap to borrow money. Um... And uh, so a whole bunch of people decided to invest their money into bonds, into things like that. But what happened as a result of inflation is that the Federal Reserve and other central banks all around the world decided that they needed to make borrowing money a little bit more expensive just to cool in inflation off. When governments have easy access to money, when individuals have easy access to money, that drives excessive demand, which is the primary cause of inflation. I know we did a whole episode on this a few months ago. I really don't want to rehash um, old talking points that we'd already covered. But yeah, so they decided to buy a whole bunch of bonds. But as the interest rates crept up and crept up and crept up, these bonds lowered and lowered and lowered in face value, which means not in face value, in, um, in yield to maturity, which is basically the value that they actually currently have. Wow, I sound like such a finance bro right now. So these bond yields lowered and lowered and lowered, meaning that you could sell the bond for less and less and less money because the interest rates were high. Because the interest rates were high, why would you buy my 1% interest rate bond right now when I could buy a 6% interest rate bond on the open market? So they had to lower the price of these bonds to lower than what they actually bought them for, which would be fine if these bonds had eventually matured and they all got all their money back. That would have been totally fine. However, what happened is because they had a sudden need for cash and liquidity, people were suddenly asking, you know what? We need to deposit our money. We need to withdraw our money. We need to get our money back. And of course, this money was tied up in loans. This money was tied up in bonds. This money was basically not within the walls of the bank. But when people came knocking and were like, hey, um, we'd actually like our money back now. We don't want it withdrawn. 
Silicon Valley Bank was like, oh shoot, we actually don't have your money. It's in this bond that's going to expire in 30 years. We'll get your money back in 30 years. So what they were forced to do is sell off all of those bonds at like massive, massive losses. And this caused everyone to panic. They're like, oh shit. We know that Silicon Valley Bank does not have enough money because they bought these bonds at this value, but they're selling them at a much lower value. We're not going to get our money back. We should all run to the bank and withdraw all the money that we have. This is what is known as a bank run. And eventually Silicon Valley Bank just, or SVB just like simply ran out of money and they, they just didn't have any money left. And it was a banking collapse. Um, and there were fears that other banks um, would have the same thing happen to them. But um, those fears were sort of allayed because, you know, other banks, people didn't go for a run, didn't go on. There wasn't a banking run on other banks due to a bailout given not to the bank, but to the to the actual depositors, like the businesses that had their money stored in the bank, the businesses and individuals that had their money stored in the bank. And I was actually wondering, Milda, what you feel about this sort of bailout. Let's say a bank collapses, a bunch of people and businesses have their money in that bank. They can't get their money back. Do you think that they should be bailed out? But like, do you, like, regular individuals also get bailouts? Like s compensations or something? Like, yeah, yeah. I think it makes sense, like... I generally don't understand why I, I understand that this is probably like a common practice for banks to engage in these kind of activities. So I don't understand why we still allow these kind of things to happen. But I do agree that individuals should be helped if this kind of thing happens regarding large businesses. Well, you know how I feel about corporations, but yeah, <laughs> I do. I do support support for individuals, especially and in for smaller businesses. Yeah. Yeah, so there's this concept in, in, in finance called, like, hedging against risk. And this is what SVB did not do. To go back to the snake analogy, this is like buying, like, an unbreakable cage for your snake or, or a glass bowl or cage or whatever you throw those apex predators into. This looks like, I don't know, snake-proofing your house, whatever that means. Look, these things are difficult, but you get what I'm trying to say. Basically, doing your due diligence... To like make sure that like you outweigh your possibility of like a risk of something like this happening and svb just chose not to do this they did not hedge against risk properly they basically just did bad banking and the interesting thing is that these quote-unquote too big to fail banks um that we've heard a lot about they're actually much more heavily regulated on this sort of hedge risk hedging um, thing. They're not allowed to basically take these massive risks or not have enough liquidity because they're very closely watched by regulators. Um, this is post-2008 that a lot of these rules were brought into place. Because yeah, they're too big to fail. They were bailed out. But that means that they're also subject to regulations that these smaller banks are not subject to. But it sort of arises the question like, wait, why should it only be the bigger banks that are, that are regulated like this? Smaller banks should also also have the capacity to cause systemic ruin and trigger a chain reaction of terrible things um, within the banking world. Um, so yeah, anyways, we started talking about snakes. We ended up talking about tech bros and finance. I don't know how we got there. I'm just gonna see. <laughs>
Bless you. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, the last thing I wanted to say on this was um, how there's sort of two models um, for a bank that we see in the U.S. versus Canada. In Canada, we've got like five or six banks. There are these massive institutions and every Canadian has all their money in one of these banks. Whereas in the U.S., there's a whole bunch of these like local tiny banks and banks basically operate as, as, as any other business. They're treated like they have risk profiles, they are allowed to fail, they, you know, there's a whole bunch of things. There's a whole bunch of banks in the U.S. and there's not a lot of banks in Canada because in the U.S., they view banks as any other business, just like a type of business. And you could start a bank just like you could start a small business. Whereas in Canada, they're subject to sort of like public utility regulation. Um, people see them as less of a business and more of like a tool for our collective good. And I don't know, each has its pros and, and cons. Um, there's a reason why Canada does not have as um, extensive of like an innovation culture or anything like the U.S. does. Um, it's because the U.S. banks are willing to take more risk because they're like any other small business. But at the same time, you never see Canadian banks collapse uh, or do any of these sorts of risky maneuvers that may cause the whole system to come falling down. Yeah, I think that banks should work for people and the government should work for people as well. So I like the Canada Canadian banking system. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 fine. I know that banking is really not your expertise, but I really I really um appreciate the opportunity that you gave me to 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 speak about this. It's not my expertise either, but it's something that I'm definitely interested in and um think that people should at least have some sort of background knowledge of. Yeah, I think this is really important and thank you for explaining it in such simple terms and also giving the snake analogy. <laughs> I just had to figure out a way to work that in there. So thank you very much for listening to episode 22 of Wake Up Call. Of course, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and TikTok, where we post clips and excerpts and also fan polls. And see you all very soon.